الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد ترين وبيجن بحديث of Abdullah and who is Abdullah so that's your mini homework for next week قال الإمام البخاري رحمه الله تعالى قال حدثنا الحميدي قال حدثنا سفيان قال حدثنا عبد الملك بن أعين وجامع بن أبي راشد عن أبي وائل عن عبد الله رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من اقتطع ما لم رئ مسلم بيمين كاذبة لقي الله وهو عليه غضبان قال عبد الله ثم قرأ رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم مصداقه من كتاب الله إلا ذكره إلا الذين يشترون بعهد الله وإيمانهم ثمرا قليلا أولئك لا خلاق لهم في الآخرة ولا يكلمهم الله In this narration then it says Whoever takes the property of a Muslim by taking a false oath Whoever takes the property of a Muslim by taking a false oath will meet Allah who will be angry with him. Somebody who deceptively takes the wealth of another person by taking an oath upon a lie to claim it's his, then when he meets Allah on that day, Allah will be angered with him. And then the Prophet ﷺ recited the ayah, the meaning of which is, Verily those who purchase a small gain at the cost of Allah's covenant and their oaths, they shall have no portion in the hereafter, Neither will Allah speak to them, nor look at them. So this narration, before looking at the meaning of it, where is the shahid? Remember the purpose of our chapter right now is to highlight the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah regarding seeing Allah. So where in this narration does it indicate the topic of seeing Allah? So in both, in the text itself, in the text itself in particular where it says Allah, that whomsoever takes a false oath to claim the wealth of another, then he will meet Allah on that day with Allah angry upon him. And then the ayah was revealed indicating that meaning. فقد استدل بها كثير من العلماء على رؤية الله عز وجل لأن اللقاء لا يكون إلا برؤية So many of the scholars they use these narrations where it talks about the fact that you will meet Allah on that day the fact that you will meet Allah on that day as an indication of seeing Allah therefore because meeting Allah then that indicates seeing Allah therefore so that is how the scholars use these evidences but sabaqa anna al-liqa amun wa khasun fal-liqa al-khas huwa an yahluwa allahu azza wa jal bi'abdihi mu'min wa yuqarriruhu bi-dhunubih واللقاء العام يكون لجميع الخلق ومنشند ولي بفور that meeting Allah on that day is two types there is a specific meeting of Allah 
when the believer will be alone with Allah and you will have to acknowledge your sins and your wrongs and your shortcomings then there is the general meeting of Allah where all of the creation meet Allah on that day وفي هذا التحذير من اقتطاع مال المسلم باليمين الكاذبة so in this hadith then the actual meaning of the narration it talks about taking the wealth of another person by taking a false oath upon it by lying and taking an oath upon this issue to receive and to gain that wealth from this other person there are different methods and manners in which that could occur but that isn't the purpose of our topic here the point is clear the point being that an individual who takes money from another by lying in the oath then clearly that is from the major sins and it mentions how that type of individual then he will have no share in the hereafter and Allah will not speak to him so all of that indicating the severity of the sin of a person who lies in his oaths to gain that which he has no right to gain Then after that, قال حدثنا عبد الله ابن محمد قال حدثنا سفيان عن عمر عن أبي صالح عن أبي هريرة عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال ثلاثة لا يكلمهم الله يوم القيامة ولا ينظر إليهم رجل حلف على سرعة لقد أعطى بها أكثر مما أعطى وهو كاذب ورجل حلف على يمين كاذبة بعد العصر ليقتطع بها مال مرئ مسلم ورجل منع فضل ماء فيقول الله يوم القيامة اليوم أمنعك فضلي كما منعت فضل ما لم تعمل يداك in this narration now it says that there are three types of people who Allah will not speak to on the day of resurrection three people or three types of people who Allah will not speak to on the day of resurrection nor will he look at them he will not speak to them nor will he look at them the first one رجل حلف على سرعة لقد أعطى بها أكثر مما أعطى وهو كافر the first one is a person who claims to have paid an X amount for a good that he is selling but that amount he is claiming he actually bought the item for in the first place is a lie meaning when you go to somebody and you say I'll offer you 10 pounds for this he says but even I paid 11 to get it in the first place but he's lying upon that he is lying upon how much he paid so that is the first example given a man takes an oath that he paid an X amount for his product and the reality is he did not pay that amount there's an example I remember always in Saudi Arabia on one occasion there was a person selling fragrances selling fragrances so of course you have to barter your price you have to get involved in some bartering to get a lower price for those items so the bartering began for this particular fragrance and so I offered him in the end an amount he took an oath he said by an oath that he paid more than what I'm offering he said it's impossible I cannot give it to you for that amount impossible 
I paid more. I paid X, Y, and Z for it. So now he's telling you it is impossible for him to sell it at that amount because it would be a loss for him. It would be a loss. He is telling me I paid X amount for it. Your offer is below that. It will be a loss if I sell it to you for that amount. But then, of course, a couple of minutes of bartering more, and there you have it. Lo and behold, I've just bought it for the price that I offered. So now, this person is supposed to have made a loss. So I said to him, But, Akhi, that was quite generous of you. You've made a loss now, haven't you? You've made a loss now in this item you've sold me. Isn't that the case? So then he gave what they call the wry smile. Meaning he knew full well that he hadn't made a loss, he'd still made a profit. He knew full well he'd still made a profit, just not the profit he wanted, but he'd made a profit full well. So the point here in the first example is a person lies and says that I bought this item for X amount, I cannot sell it for you less than this particular amount and the reality is he never bought it for that amount in the first place that is the first example of the one Allah does not speak to nor looks at the deceptive trader who does those things secondly رَجُلٌ حَلَفَ عَلَى يَمِينٍ كَافِبًا بَعْدَ الْعَصْرِ لِيَقْتَطِعَ بِهَا مَا لَمْرِئٍ مُسْلِمٍ a man who takes a false oath after the Asr prayer in order to attain and achieve the property of a Muslim through it. And that is the same as the previous narration. A person lies, takes an oath that is a lie to be able to get their hands on something which they have no right to. So Allah does not speak to that person nor look at him on the day of resurrection. And the third one, رَجُلٌ مَنَعَ فَضْلَ مَا A man who refuses others to be able to use the surplus water flow that he has. To such a man, Allah will say on the day of resurrection, Today I withhold my blessings from you as you withheld the uh, extra part of the water which your hands did not create. That's like the example of a person who has a field, for example, and there is some type of stream that happens to come from the mountains into his field. But then he prevents that stream from flowing on into the field of his neighbor, diverts it, does whatever, stops the extra water he doesn't even need to carry on and flow into the field of his neighbor. So that is now him preventing the extra water flow from his neighbor for no reason. It's not his that he has created for himself. It is the stream, it is the water that is coming, but he's preventing it from going on to his neighbor. So that is mentioned also as one of the types that Allah will not speak to on the day of judgment nor look at. So in this example, the first person was the deceptive trader. The one who claims he bought the item for a certain amount to try and get you to pay a greater amount for his profit to increase. And the reality is he didn't pay anywhere near that amount he is claiming. So this is one of the first means of deception. That a person claims to have bought an item for more than he actually did. In addition to that comes the topic of bidding. The topic of bidding. Where you claim that you have a higher bid on a particular item. Where you claim to have a higher bid on a particular item. So a person wants to buy it off you and you claim you have a higher bid. He's going to have to beat that bid to get it. Beat the bid I've already got, then I'll sell it to you. Otherwise I've got a higher bid. And the reality is he doesn't 
have any higher bid. He has not been offered any higher bid. And so he's only using that as a trick or a deception to encourage this person to offer a higher amount and a more amount. So this is all from the deception. لأنه في هذه الحال يخضع الآخرين فيظنون أنه صادق فيعطون مثل ما أعطي أو يزيدون So he deceives the people in this way convincing them that he has these higher offers and so encouraging them to try and make the higher offer to beat that one so that they can buy it and he gets more money out of them falsely he's never got any higher offer the offer they were making would have been sufficient. He's tricking them and deceiving them to increase. And so this is impermissible. So this happens with some people. This happens with some people that they may engage in this deceptive type of talk. And that is impermissible and haram to do. When it comes to rizq, your sustenance and your provisions. There is no requirement, as well as the fact that it is haram, of course, anyway, for a person to be deceptive in it. Your rizq has been apportioned to you. It has been written for you. And what rizq has been written for you, nobody else can take away from you. So seek the righteous rizq the halal rizq and do not seek after the haram a person thinks he's making a few extra pounds with deception and he's gaining out of that his bank balance is increasing there is no barakah in that that is your barakah being removed from you so there is no purpose and no gain in reality for a person to achieve income in a haram means Seek it through the halal, make dua, and Allah will put barakah into what you have. The second type of person was the one who takes an oath upon a lie to get his hands on something that isn't his right. And that we already mentioned. And the third person in this narration was the one who prevents the water flow, the superfluous water flow, the extra water from flowing on into his neighbor and elsewhere. An example of that would be as well, a man who has a well. A man owns a well. He takes all of the water out of the well that he needs. But of course the well, the underground water is always full. But he tells his neighbors, no, you can't take any water out of it. Prevents other people from taking water out of that well, even though he takes everything he needs. And it's still, of course full of plenty of water that others could use but he prevents them but he has a well full of water extra water than he needs he prevents the people from taking the extra water even though it doesn't cause him any harm it's extra that he doesn't need wouldn't cause him any problem but he prevents them anyway فهذا أيضا حرام عليه لأن الذي أنبع الماء في البر هو الله والذي أنزل الماء من السماء هو الله the water in the well isn't something he's created that water in the well is what Allah has filled the well with him for that water is what comes from the rains and from the ground so that is not his water he has created. And the surplus, he should not prevent the people from using it. And that's why it says in the narration in one of them, It's not like it's your own two hands that have created this. So the narration says, what you have not created with your own two hands, a natural well in the ground, water filling up in it, a natural stream coming down, water coming into it, 
That is there. Naturally, it is there. You should not prevent anyone from using it. But if you have created something with your own two hands, then it's your right. So, for example, now he's gone there, put the effort in, filled his bucket after bucket from the well, and he's gone and filled up some type of small pond. He's gone to the well, bucket after bucket, a full day of pulling it out to fill up this pond he's got next to his house. Now that's his right. He has put the effort in, he's been striving, a full day of work to extract the water, bring it out, put it into his barrels or whatever. That is his right now to that water. He may use what he wants to use and keep the rest for his purposes. He doesn't have to give it to anybody. But what's there in the world, what's there in the stream, he should not bypass that, stop that, prevent other people from using it. So these people who commit these types of acts, it's mentioned in this hadith, Allah will not speak to them on that day, and Allah will not look at them on that day. There are a few topics, side points to mention here. One of them is that at the end of the narration, notice that it says that Allah will say to that person who prevented the water from the others, that just like you prevented them, then today I am going to prevent you the extra. So now Allah is talking to him. Yet it mentions there that Allah will not speak to these people. So what is the answer there? كُلِّ الْكَلَامِ الْمَنْفِي فِي مِثْلِ هَذِهِ السِّيَاقِ الْمُرَادُ بِهِ كَلَامُ الرِّضَى Like we said before, in these types of narrations, the point is, when Allah speaks to you, that is a blessing for you. And when you see Allah, that is a blessing for you. But not... When Allah speaks to you in a state of anger upon you, that is no blessing for you. That would be terror for you. And when you see Allah knowing punishment is about to come to you, that is not blessing for you, that is terror for you. So when it talks about Allah not speaking to them, meaning Allah will not speak to them, it means of blessing for them. It will only be this speaking to them in terror upon them and fright upon them and punishment to come upon them. So it will not be something of pleasure for them at all. Also, in the narration it mentioned about the man who takes an oath after the Asr prayer. Why specifically after the Asr prayer mentioned in the Hadith? لِأَنَّ هَذَا الْوَقْتِ وَقْتُ فَضْلٍ وَذِكْرٍ Because that is a time of virtue and remembrance. فَإِذَا حَلَفَ الْإِنسَانُ دَعْوَ صَلَاةِ الْعَصْرِ وَهُوَ كَالِبْ صَارَ هَذَا أَعْظَمْ لِأَنَّ آخِرَ النَّهَارِ أَفْضَلْ مِنْ أَوَّلِ النَّهَارِ One of the reasons possibly behind that is because the time of Asr is a virtuous time. It is a time of remembrance. And that's why perhaps some of the scholars have mentioned as well about the time on the Friday when your du'a will be answered, many of them say it is after Asr, up until the Maghrib, in that slot. So, perhaps it is due to the virtue of that time it is mentioned. Then after that, قال البخاري رحمه الله تعالى قال حدثنا محمد بن المثنى قال حدثنا عبد الوهاب قال حدثنا أيوب عن محمد عن ابن أبي بكرة عن أبي بكرة عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال الزمان قد استدار كهيئته يوم خلق الله السماوات والأرض السنة اثنى عشر شهرا منها أربعة حرم ثلاث متواليات بالقعد وبالحج والمحرم ورجب مضر الذي بين جمداء وشعبان أي شهر هذا قلنا الله ورسوله أعلم فسكت حتى ظننا أنه يسميه بغير اسمه قال أليس بالحجة قلنا بلى قال أي بلد هذا قلنا الله ورسوله أعلم فسكت حتى ظننا أنه سيسميه بغير اسمه 
قال أليس البلدة قلنا بلى قال فأي يوم هذا قلنا الله ورسوله أعلم فسكت حتى ظننا أنه سيسميه بغير اسمه قال أليس يوم النحر قلنا بلى قال فإن دماءكم وأموالكم قال محمد وأحسبه قال وأعراضكم عليكم حرام كحرمة يومكم هذا في بلدكم هذا في شهركم هذا وستلقون ربكم فيسألكم عن أعمالكم ألا فلا ترجعوا بعدي بولا يضرب بعضكم رقاب بعض ألا ليبلغ الشاهد الغائب فلعل بعض من يبلغه أن يكون أوعى من بعض من سمعه فكان محمد ذلكره قال صدق النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ثم قال ألا هل بلغت ألا هل بلغت In this narration then the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said the time has come back to its original state which it had when Allah created the heavens and the earth. The year is 12 months, of which four are sacred. From those four out of the 12 that are sacred months, three of them come in a row. Namely, and they are, which three? Here it mentions namely Dhul-Qa'da, Dhul-Hijjah, and Muharram. And then the fourth one, Rajab, Mular, which is between Jumada and Sha'ban. The Prophet then asked us, which month is this? We said Allah and His Messenger know better. He kept quiet so long that we thought He might name it by another name. Then he said, isn't it Dhul-Hijjah? We said, yes. He asked, what town is this? We said, Allah and his messenger know best. Then he kept quiet so long that we thought he might call it by another name. He then said, isn't it the town of Mecca? We said, yes. He said, what day is this? We said, Allah and his messenger know best. Then he kept quiet so long that we thought he might name it by another name. Then he said, isn't it the day of An-Nahar? The day of Al-Nahar is what day? The day of slaughtering is what day? The tenth of Al-Hijjah, Eid day. We said yes. Then he said your blood, your lives, your properties. And in the later Muhammad, he says, he thinks, he said, and your honor are sacred to one another like the sanctity, the sacredness, of this day of yours, in this town of yours, in this month of yours. You shall meet your Lord, and He will ask you about your deeds. Beware, don't go astray after me by striking the necks of one another. Lo, it is incumbent upon those who are present to inform those who are absent, for perhaps the informed one might comprehend it better than some of the present ones. Whenever the sudden narrator Muhammad mentioned that statement, he would say, the Prophet said the truth. And then the Prophet added, no doubt, haven't I conveyed Allah's message? No doubt, have I not conveyed Allah's message? And he mentions in that narration, the Prophet was saying that as he Raise this finger. Have I not conveyed? Have I not conveyed? So in this narration, it is talking about the event that occurred on the day of Eid, when the Prophet ﷺ was giving them this khutbah. So it mentions that the days or the earth and this uh, creation has come back to the state that it was in. Uh, and then he talks about the 12 months of the year, four of them being sacred, uh, three of them in a row, and then the fourth by itself. And then he says to them, which month is this? They stayed quiet, thinking maybe he's going to give it some other name. But then he told them, the Hijjah, then he said to them, where is this place? Where are we? 
They stayed quiet, thinking maybe it's going to be another name. But when we told them Mecca, and then he said to them, what day is it? Again, they remained quiet, thinking maybe it's going to be another day, a name of, uh, a different name. But then he told them it is Yom al-Nahar. And then in the end, it mentions about how they will meet their Lord. They will meet their Lord, and then their Lord will ask them regarding their actions. So the purpose of this narration is again to highlight the fact that we will all certainly meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then we will be asked about our deeds and what we did. So this again is emphasizing the point regarding seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on that day. All of these narrations then we've done the last four sessions now approximately. All of them have spoken about the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah regarding seeing Allah in the hereafter. So, who can summarize for us that chapter there? If somebody now asked you the question, what is your aqidah regarding seeing Allah? Then your answer would be what? So you can say, we will not see Allah in this world, in this existence, but we will see Him in the hereafter. So then He says to you, what's your proof on that? What is your proof that we will not see Allah in this world? Which is? But this world. What is your proof that we will not see Allah in this world? So that could be one example. You could quote the example of Musa salam. Musa salam requested to see Allah. When he said, Rabbi. Rabbi what? Arini anvur ilik. Show me, let me look at you. But then Allah said, Lan tarani, you will not see me. Lan indicates future tense negation. You will not be seeing me. So, Musa was told you cannot see Allah. Other examples to prove that we cannot see Allah in this world? You have the narration when the Prophet ﷺ said, لَن تَرَوْ رَبَّكُمْ حَتَّى تَمُوتُوا You will not see your Lord until you die. You will not see your Lord until you die. So in this world you will not see Allah until you die. Meaning, after the resurrection then, you will see your Lord. Another proof that we cannot see Allah in this life, in this world. There's lots, over 2,000, which one? So the statement of Aisha anha regarding the event of Al-Isra Al-Mi'raj the night when the Prophet ﷺ was taken up to the heavens. On that night, with Jibreel ﷺ, he passed through all of the heavens until he was above the seventh heaven. And then he met with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Or Allah spoke to Muhammad ﷺ. On that night, did the Prophet ﷺ actually see Allah? No. And your proof, the statement of Aisha radiallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, she said anybody who claims that the Prophet ﷺ saw Allah on that night, then he's lying. 
So that shows that the Prophet ﷺ didn't see Allah on that night. There's another narration too, when the Prophet ﷺ himself said, Hijabuhu nur anna arah. His covering was light, how could I see him? So all of these narrations, they indicate that even the Prophet ﷺ did not see Allah in this world. Even on the night of Al-Isra Al-Mi'raj, taken up to the heavens, he did not see Allah on that night. So the aqeedah of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah is that during this existence, in this life, in this world, we cannot see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But, after the resurrection, the day of judgment and after, then we can see Allah. And now we need the proof for that then. Proof for that? One of the guests. Give the guests a turn. Those who are non-Mancunians. What is the proof? That we will see Allah in the hereafter. What's the proof though? We need the proof. The question is, what is the proof that we will see Allah in the afterlife? After the resurrection, what is the proof? No non-man comes with the answer? Representing, uh huh. All right, one at a time then. One, which is so. All of these. The first one over there was the hadith. We mentioned it a couple of sessions ago. Hadith, or maybe last week, one of the sessions. When on that day, the people of paradise. Allah will say to them, or ask them if they want something more. They will say, you saved us from the hellfire, you placed us into paradise, you gave us all these blessings, what more could there be? And then that's when Allah allows them to see Him. And then they realize the greatest of all of the blessings, the blessing of Seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is the narration, all of those clear ahadith, when the Prophet said, Innakum satarawna rabbakum kama tarawna al-qamr layatul badr laysadunahu sahab. That you will see Allah just as you see the full moon on a night where there's no clouds. On a clear night like how you see the full moon, with clarity, without any issue, then you will see Allah on the Day of Judgment also. And the third one was, the ayah as an example to, On that day the people's faces will be glowing. Looking at their Lord, the scholars they say that could mean one of two things. Either Allah prepares them that their faces are made glowing and bright and radiant in preparation to see Allah. Or that upon seeing Allah, the impact is that their faces become glowing and radiant and bright. So these are all evidences that we will see Allah in the hereafter. So the aqidah, the correct aqidah regarding this topic is that we cannot see Allah in this world, but we will see Allah in the hereafter. Therefore, those who claim falsely, incorrectly, that we can see Allah in this world, the likes of 
typically the Sufis and their various sects they believe their Imams see Allah now and even the Prophet wasallam didn't see Allah in this world and he was taken up to the heavens yet they believe their Imams see Allah clear error clear mistake and a clear misunderstanding of the evidences a clear error and innovation they have fallen into on the other side you have those who claim we cannot see Allah ever not in this world nor in the hereafter those people are also refuted by these evidences we've been through now and we refuted some of the evidences they use in particular the most common one being the ayah la tujrikuhul abisar wa huwa yujrikul abisar eyesights cannot encompass Allah Allah is the one who encompasses them so now that seems to show our eyesights cannot encompass the sight of Allah and the people of innovation will therefore say that's a proof that we can't see Allah so how do you reply to that so seeing and idrak encompassing something are two different things in reality the stage of encompassing something comes after the stage of actually seeing so the fact that Allah is negating encompassment that we won't encompass Allah indicates that we've gone through the stage of actually seeing Allah it's an affirmation you will see Allah but you will not encompass the might and the majesty of Allah so that is refuting that they may also use the example of Musa salam, because when Musa salam asked to see Allah he was told Lan Tarani Lan in the Arabic language is what? put your hands up if you have finished Medina book 2 level put your hands up I know there are some because I taught you myself. Put your hands up if you've done up to Medina book 2. Up to about lesson 20-ish. Lan is lesson 19, I think, in Medina book 2. So, all of those who have done it, explain what Lan is. Since claiming to have done something indicates that you've understood it and you know it. So, it's uh, uh, something which indicates negation in the future tense. Grammatically, what else is it? And it makes it mansub for those doing it. So, it indicates a negation in the future tense. Like you say in English, I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z. It's a future tense negation. Are you going to go to the park tomorrow? I am not going to go to the park. You have now negated something, an action in the future tense. You are not going to go. Lam is a future tense negation. So when Musa salam said to Allah, allow me to see you, and Allah said, Lan tarani, You will not be seeing me. You will not be seeing me. You will never see me. Indicating negation into the future tense. You will not be seeing me. So isn't that now a proof for the people of innovation? Allah has just said to Musa salam, You will not be seeing me. Future tense. Not that you won't see me now, you, you cannot see me. You will not see me. You are not going to see me. Future tense negation. So now, what are you going to do with that? Ayah in the Quran saying, you are not going to see Allah. Future tense. It's not absolute. So I say to you, are you going to the park tomorrow? 
You say, I am not going to go to the park tomorrow. I will not be going to the park tomorrow. But then you mean you are going to go at 9 p.m. in the evening. So the negation in the future tense in Arabic does not indicate absolute future tense negation. When you say, I am not going to be doing X, Y, and Z using lang in Arabic, it means into the future tense you don't plan to do that. But at some stage in the future, it is still possible you might. And the fact that you've used the word lang doesn't indicate any problem in that. Because lang doesn't mean never, ever. It doesn't mean never, ever to infinity. Never, ever, never, ever doesn't mean that. It just means never, just the once. Not never, ever, never, ever to infinity. So it's a future tense negation, but not to forever. And in the Arabic language, that is what it means. Anybody who claims that Lan is a future tense negation into infinity forever, then they have not understood the Arabic language and they don't know the meaning of Lan. So when Allah said to Musa alayhi salam, you're not going to see me, it is future tense. You are not going to see me. But it's not into infinity. It's to a certain point. And where is that certain point going to be? How are we going to work out where that certain point is going to be? What's the way and the method of working out where that negation stops at? How are we going to work it out? You put together the evidences of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. You put together the evidences. When you have them all together in context, you can then work out what's going on. So now we've just mentioned all of those evidences highlighting in this world, we can't see Allah. But then there are several evidences indicating we can see Allah after a certain point. And that point was the point of resurrection after life, the day of judgment. So now the land you are not going to see me to Musa salam is referring to a future tense negation up until the end of this creation. Up until the resurrection. Then after the resurrection, all of the evidences together in context indicate, now the, the negation ends. And you will be able to see Allah. So you see, the way of Ahlul Sunnah is always putting all these evidences together to understand the correct aqidah. Why do so many people go astray, misguided in aqidah, not understanding the correct aqidah? Because they don't have this holistic type of approach where you look at all of the evidences and you understand them together, ayat, ahadith, to understand the correct aqidah. They take only snippets of information. So the people of innovation take this ayah, Lan tarani, you are not going to see me. La tudurikuhu al-abasar, the eyesights cannot encompass Allah. They take those two or three and they make their aqidah, we cannot see Allah. But only if they had sat down and gone through all of the other evidences, they would have realized the negation is only referring to this world and that the evidences are clearly highlighting in the hereafter we will see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that is the chapter in Sahih al-Bukhari from Kitab al-Tawheed regarding the topic of seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the new chapter we're going to start the next time any questions up to there any questions on that topic or anything else prior to that or anything else? Hmm. issue of fear it is an act of worship to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and if a person had that type of fear for others besides Allah 
then it can be considered a form of shirk. So Allah said in the Quran, Fala do not fear them but fear me. Do not fear them but fear me. So there is a type of fear, a fear of worship that is for Allah. And we know the aqeedah of sunnah in that topic is to balance between fear and hope. A believer is always between fear and hope and love. And that's why Ibn al-Qayyim mentioned it is like a bird. The two wings of the bird are fear and hope. And the head of the bird is love. Any one of those components goes missing and the bird either cannot fly or it is dead in the first place. If you have no love, there is no submission to Allah. There is no uh, humility before your Lord. You're missing that vital component. If you're missing the component of fear, like the Murajia and those types of people saying we only do our worship uh, uh, in, in hope that Allah will forgive us, Allah will have mercy upon us as long as you say La ilaha illallah, doesn't matter what you do, inshallah, Allah will forgive you. No fear. Others like the Khawarij on the extreme of fear. So as soon as you commit a sin, a major sin, and you die upon it, they say, that's it, he's going to be in the hellfire forever. Too much on the extreme of fear. So Ibn Qayyim described it as a bird. The love, the hope, and the fear that a believer balances between. But at the time of death, you're supposed to give priority to the aspect of hope. Your hope in Allah at the point of death, you increase in your hope in Allah. That Allah will forgive you and have mercy upon you. So that is something which is an act of worship. In the Quran it talks about Iblis. Iblis saying that I fear my Lord. Iblis, we know the history of Iblis. Now he was from the elevated ones initially. And Iblis himself in terms of his understanding, he clearly understands and recognizes and knows of Allah. And knows of the hellfire. And knows of all of those affairs. And knows what his abode is going to be. And that's why it mentions in the Quran, he says, I will try and take as many of them with me. That he will try to misguide as many as he is able so the fear that is mentioned, it could be understood as, a, as a, an actual realization of Iblis that he knows. He knows the end result. He knows he was there. He was elevated. He was with the angels. He knows of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the punishment of Allah, the severity of that punishment. He knows all of that. But now he is, as they say in the English language, damned, cursed. But that is something which he cannot exit from now, from what has occurred. So that fear, it could be an indication of the actual fear, how we understand it, because of his recognition of the reality of the affairs. But we can revise further into the tafsir of those ayat to see if any of the scholars have mentioned more. Anything else? Well, that, like we said, is a difference between the scholars. The believers, of course, will certainly see Allah. The disbelievers, do they see Allah or not then? There is an opinion of the scholars, no, they don't get to see Allah at all. In the opinion that mentions on the, the, uh, the lands of resurrection, that they do see Allah, then they say it is a site of terror. If they do see Allah then, with these narrations talking about various things, it will be in a context of terror for them. But that is some. Other scholars, they say, no, they will not be given the sight of Allah at all. Allah, the stronger opinions, those types of issues, 
whether uh, which opinion is stronger, which one is weaker, then you can do a whole lesson talking about all of the opinions on either side and how they refute each other. It's not possible to give a straight answer and to say which one is stronger. Anything else? So, a small announcement as well. Uh, next week on Saturday, actually what's happening with this class? Uh, 8 o'clock, straight after Maghrib, that's okay. But next week in uh, Rochdale, close by over here in Rochdale, there's going to be some classes starting there for the first time. So the da'wah is going to start there for the first time, inshallah, properly on a regular basis. There's been things in the past, a long time ago. But properly on a regular basis now, it's going to start this Saturday at midday. So every Saturday at midday, there's going to be a lecture held in Rochdale. Uh, the, the details are on the leaflets, you can take them as you go out. Every Saturday at midday. And that's going to be starting with a very basic book, which is a new, uh, a book for newcomers, for people starting seeking knowledge from the basics, from the beginning. And that is the book, The Three Fundamental Principles. The Three Fundamental Principles. That is a book which talks about the three questions everybody is asked in their graves. Who is your Lord? What is your religion? And who is your prophet? That is the questions that a person is asked in the grave. The angels, they come and they ask those questions. So the believers are required to be upon knowledge regarding those questions. What is your, or who is your Lord in some detail? What is your religion in some detail? Who is your Prophet Muhammad? Who was he? In some detail. So those three basic aspects of our religion, we're going to be doing the book discussing those. A reasonably short course, approximately 15 to 20 weeks, and that will be completed. And then there'll be uh, some type of quiz or question paper at the end as well to test your knowledge with the answers given as well separately. So whoever wants to try and attend that, who is able to attend that, especially for those who are now uh, striving with seeking knowledge, in particular in the early stages, and for the others who have not done the book properly in detail, then this will be detailed. 20 sessions is detail for the three fundamental principles. 15 sessions is detail. Scholars used to teach that book in 10 sessions. More than 10 sessions, and it was going into a lot of detail. So 15 sessions, approximately, maximum 20, a reasonably detailed explanation of that book, so that you've got those basics done. Very good for newcomers in particular, and of course, for the others, for the students, etc., want to get that book properly done, memorized already. We've done, many of us before, the memorization when we used to do it. So inshallah that's going to begin on Saturday at midday in Rochdale around the corner. Uh, every Saturday at midday, there may be the odd one where it's off, but every Saturday at midday now for the duration of the winter, for the next two or three months, that will be on in Rochdale inshallah. So those who can make it, then try and attend that. Even if you cannot and you have others, friends, family, people you know in that area, and encourage them to go as well. It's uh, important to develop and to build the da'wah in uh, various locations wherever possible, to spread it as much as possible. So inshallah, watch there, we'll be beginning from next week, midday, on Saturday. The leaflets, will put them out on the uh, uh, entrance exit as you're going, you can take them. Uh, and the details will be on their Twitter account, very simple. Tawheed Rochdale T-A-W-H-E-E-D Old school, no problem Rochdale Tawheed Rochdale That's the name of the Twitter account You can have a look for updates and details on there as well 
So, we'll round off on that for tonight then. Carry on next week at 8 p.m. insha'Allah with the new section now, the new topic which is regarding the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is where the next chapter begins with. So we'll start with that chapter next week insha'Allah. وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين